It is Lent, obviously. Um, joking with some people in the uh, before the class, if uh, if you if you feel the need to sort of you know do some penance during Lent and kind of give up something, just come to the classes in the chapter room and you can feel better about yourselves because you have to sit in these really <laughs> narrow chairs and you know put some rocks in your shoes if you need to and you can really feel you know like, gosh all those cushy chairs and the refectory those people that are just cushion fat you know whatever so come to the chapter room be a better christian so welcome i'm glad you're here so um couple of things uh talking with some folks um before the the class a uh, couple of events coming up elise fitzpatrick will be with us tomorrow and and tuesday as our lenten preacher at noon but we're also um inviting she's 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 graciously said yes to do some other extra events elise fitzpatrick is a it's probably our biggest name in terms of, uh, of, uh, of authorship and readership and all that. She's written several books, probably approaching 20 now, but one that really sort of threw her on the map was one called Give Them Grace. Um, I can't remember its subtitle. Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Christ or something like that. Um, I've read it, and it's very good. Um, for many of us here who are... Uh, uh, steeped in the Lutheran tradition, that being the tradition that comes out of Martin Luther. There's a book that's been very important to a lot of us by Gerhard Faraday. This all has a point, by the way, uh, called On Being a Theologian of the Cross. She takes that book, if you're familiar with it, I know about four or five in the room would be, and her first third of the book is really a commentary on that book. So it's a book about a book for the first third, and then she takes that and kind of roots it in some, some practical, it'd be great, some practical and concrete ways um, in the latter two-thirds. So she's really good. Um, and somebody just asked, is it worth getting a babysitter for? And I said, yes, it is. It's worth getting a babysitter for. Um, this is a, it's, it's a, invite your small group to, to come, you know, give up the, the regular meeting in order to come to this. She's going to be at Beeson Divinity School tomorrow, or in their chapel. That's We're hosting it. They're graciously letting us use it because it's got more space than Cramner House. What are the times, babe? Seven to nine. Seven to nine. Um, so uh, we're hoping for a good crowd. Non-admitters are more than welcome. Um, we expect a good, a good crop of Presbyterians in particular. Uh, they really like her for some reason. Um, and uh, it's an open event. We hope we hope you'll come. And then uh, another event with her on Tuesday morning, and then Friday morning, Lauren Larkin, who's a close friend of Deborah Layton and also known to several folks who follow the Mockingbird blog. Um, uh, she was one of Paul's all students at Trinity, and right now she's a PhD candidate. She's best known as a blogger. Um, she also has young children. That's not really why she's coming, but uh, she's really sort of a uh, uh, she's got a great voice because it's kind of two degrees off center. You know how those people are really interesting. Um, they're coming at something that you realize, yeah, that's what I think, but I didn't ever think of it that way. She's kind of that person, so she's she's also very good. So I hope you'll avail yourself of any of those opportunities that you can. Um, this is Jason Wallace in the back, a good friend of mine. Yeah, the one looking around. So. Um, uh, I introduced Jason because he and I are team teaching this next this series. Um, this is the first of four, and I'm so, so grateful to Jason. I sprang this on him only about two weeks ago because of the way my schedule was. I was going to do this three-week class on forgiveness, and then I couldn't come the middle week. I thought, well, I'll just do a two-week thing. And I thought, well, maybe Jason can fill in. And it became suddenly something that was going to be very disjointed into something that I think really might have some some legs because of Jason. Jason teaches at, at, uh, at Sanford, um, PhD in history. You can read his dossier. It's impressive. Um, uh, he's a great guy, and he'll be teaching 
the weeks that I'm not. And it's really warm in here, isn't it? So, sorry about that. Um, let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, for this day we give you thanks um, for our church. We give you thanks. Now speak to us uh, as this body here gathered and be present in the words humbly offered. Transform them uh, uh, to your grace as a mustard seed would plant and return a, a harvest 30, 60, or 100 fold. Come and and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is... um. You know, an electric title, Forgiveness, um, went for the minimal work uh, this time. Bless you. Uh, massive topic. Um, not an overstatement, probably, to say that, that forgiveness is central to Christian faith. Forgiveness is central to Christianity. Um, forgiveness is the nut. You could almost say forgiveness, Christianity, grace, gospel, Although all of those aren't synonymous per se, they're all the same. I mean, it's that intertwined where you couldn't pull one out from another and say, well, this is the gospel, and this is forgiveness, and over here this is, is uh, uh, the love of God, and over here is the reality of God's wrath poured out upon himself, what we call the atonement on the cross. These things are all intertwined. I mean, there's really no way to, to disentangle it. So that's one thing that I wanted to say. Second, really interesting, sort of in my second hat that I wear, um, first from sort of a pastoral theological sort of perspective, my second is, you know, sort of more of a, a counseling psycho uh, psychological perspective. Forgiveness is popping up now in the last five years, maybe three. Um, it's really starting to show up in what you would call the secular literature, the journals. Um, people are researching forgiveness in a way that they never have. And this doesn't have anything to do with Christianity per se. Um, uh, there'll be a lot of nods to spirituality, um, as it's true. You know, all the the spiritual traditions will will acknowledge forgiveness, but a lot is being studied right now, watched right now about forgiveness. What is it? Is it? Does it exist? Um, how does it work? If it works, what are the effects of forgiveness? More importantly, what are the effects of unforgiveness? terms of mental health, um, physical health, uh, incident rates of, of all sorts of illnesses and diseases, pathology in other words. So it's really just kind of interesting that alongside something that's been around for, you know, since since Cain um, uh, and before that, uh, here just recently, and I want to say it popped up out of nowhere, um, but it's uh, it's certainly getting a lot more attention now than it did 10 years ago. Um, all that's just kind of to say forgiveness is a huge topic. I'm um, going to come at this somewhat obliquely. Um, in other words, there's the broad side of the barn, just starting to throw some stuff against it to see to see what sticks. I would like this class, at least when I'm teaching it, and Jason will set the, his table next week, because I'm really gracious to Jason. I'm grateful to Jason. He uh, He's good to work with. He doesn't say, yeah, let me see your outline. Let me see what you're going to talk about. So I can kind of, he's like, I'll just show up and I'll kind of pick up where you leave off. Like, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. So, um, uh, throw some things out there and interact with it. Come to it. Um, ask questions. Interrupt. Uh, disagree. I'm aware that when you talk about forgiveness, there's a lot of personal experience that's brought into this. Uh, it's not a neutral subject. In other words, this isn't 
This isn't an abstraction for a lot of us. This is one of the most, if not the most, concrete things in our lives. So it's a, it's a big deal. So a few things um, before we rush to the text. I'm glad. Does everybody have a Bible? Um, it was important to me. We're going to get to that in about three to five minutes um, to, uh, to tell myself, because I could go on and on and on and on and on. I said, you know, you know do text work first and then bring the, uh, the observations later. And so we're going to be in Luke 17 in, in a few minutes. But a few things about forgiveness, just to, uh, to pick this up. What is it? I thought one of the interesting ways to define forgiveness, as I mentioned, is, is in a non-theological realm. Mayo Clinic's website has a lot on forgiveness. Mayo Clinic. And this is what they say. Forgiveness is the decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. So they have it decisional. They have it as very much sort of a volitional act. Um, the decision to give up, so there's that letting go, that, that, uh, that sense of release. Um, the decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. So thinking those questions, what does it mean for resentment, bitterness, forms of anger, scorekeeping, um, and thoughts of revenge, a fantasy sometimes enacted to, uh, to somehow right the scales and get even. Uh, the, the term, as the scripture uses it, and as it's commonly used, comes from the world of economics, um, finances. Um, to forgive a debt um, is something we still commonly call it. Uh, it's important to remember, has, a, has someone writes off a debt to another? That's why um, uh, a lot of traditions in the Lord's Prayer, they, they say, not forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us, but they use the word debt. It's not as King James poetic. Uh, but it's probably a little bit more, it is, more accurate to the, uh, to, to the, to the words which Christ uttered in, um, in Matthew 6. Uh, forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have debts against us. Um, uh, it's a financial term. There's no fiction to it. Um, every time uh, either a person, a bank, a group writes off the debt of another, there's a real cost. There's an opportunity cost, um, opportunities that are lost, which you could have done, interest that could have been gained, how it could have been used. There's suffering, in other words. Mark this. Uh, forgiveness is never free. It always has a cost. Forgiveness always involves suffering. I rely heavily on Tim Keller, a lot of what he comes in with, uh, with forgiveness. He's, he preaches on it all the time, in fact, because he sees the centrality of it. And he will even say forgiveness then, um, as it always involves suffering, is, is really nothing other than another form of substitutionary atonement. If you want to put it in a theological paradigm, that we substitute ourselves um, for, uh, for the benefit of another um, to make at one atonement. So forgiveness, um, a financial term, a decision to let go of resentment for thoughts of revenge. There's no fiction in it has to do with a debt, um, the debt that we uh, uh, are owed by others or then properly in this axis, our, our, uh, our indebtedness, our eternal indebtedness to God, which of course then rushes through with a proper understanding of who we are, who he is, and what he has done. All this we're going to flesh out, some today and then hopefully in the next four weeks. Uh, another way of describing forgiveness, forgiveness always presupposes guilt. Um, J.D. Koch. I like to drop names just to really, just to say that I'm not making it up. And also, as, as, as bald plugs, J.D. is coming to preach at Lent also later this uh, uh, in about three weeks, and he'll speak to the 20s and 30s fellowship groups. I heard him describe guilt as the different distance between the is and the ought. I thought that was a great way of putting it. 
the way things actually are versus the way things ought to be, uh, that's guilt. I should have done this and I didn't, and that's my guilt. I was supposed to be this, and I failed miserably, and that's my guilt. She said this, but she did this, the is and the ought, and that's guilt. Um, important to, to get to a place where we realize actual guilt and see things as they actually are and not the perception of it. So um, forgiveness has debts. Um, the debts then become properly described as guilt. The distance between the is and the ought uh, uh, is, is forgiveness, um, the forgiveness of that guilt. And then lastly, uh, before we do the text work, and this is also Tim Keller, Who's not coming to Lent, by the way? Um, uh, not yet, we hope. Um, uh, the currency, if you want to call it that, the currency of of forgiveness is pain. He said that, and I thought that's really interesting. The currency, the way that we transact forgiveness, uh, in the same way that the currency within finances is is is, is dollars or rubles or you know whatever. Uh, the way that we transact forgiveness is pain, um, real or actual. Uh, what does he mean by this? And again, this is just as a as a as a way of setting the table, throwing some stuff obliquely against the side of the, the barn, and then we're going to go back into this. And probably this point, I'll pick up more my 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 second week, the third week of the series. Uh, what debt do you hold over another? As there's this distinction between the is and the ought, some form of pain. Um, it's the way of the world. The world is thus, to quote you know, an old movie called The Mission that I really like, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, what comes around goes around. Some hidden but, but real sense of justice, which is buried in our heart. For the law is written on the hearts of every man, um, out of Romans. What that means is the scales of justice, you know, sort of the blind scales of justice, and there's these two things. Uh, we're great accountants. We're great scorekeepers. We can't not not do that, and we're very aware of the pain that we have have uh, felt by the injuries and the offenses and the debts of others. And I'm going to say secretly, and sometimes not so secretly, we really wish that that debt could be paid down in the pain of another. This is actually important in marriage, by the way, um, and I'm going to leave that out there. And, uh, and return to it either later on today or later. The currency of debt, I don't think I explained that very well, but kind of picking it up, the currency of forgiveness is pain, um, which is also going to be a massive entrance point for the cross, the wrath of God poured out upon himself. Um, so there's my setting the table. Aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> um, it's serious. I'm looking at the room, and, and everybody's pretty serious, and it, and it is serious. It's hard to really sort of make forgiveness, you know, airy and light and all that, especially in a warm room like this. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but it's it's the nut. Um, any comments on that? Any any feedback before we turn to the text, Luke 17? Like it, it's really between you and God, and that other person doesn't even 
It's something that happens when you meet. That's right. Not toward another person. That's right. Because the other person, that would be called reconciliation. Um, when it becomes a two-way street, but forgiveness is one way. Um, it's one way here, and then it's one way to the other person. If you're talking about a forgiveness to another person. Um, I'm going to say this again later. Um, forgiveness, you know, Mayo gets one-third of it right when they say it's the decision to let go. It's punctual, meaning at a point in time, it's a decision. But it's also a process, and then it's also an embodied life, a a habitual manner of living. Um, Thesis one of Luther's 95 theses, uh, when Christ uh, spoke of repentance, he spoke of a daily act. Um, where it's habitual, embodied, it's incarnated in who we are vis-a-vis who I am beneath him. Which hopefully going to flesh that out. So that's all to come back. Um, as children, we're taught to forgive. Um, but we do our children sometimes a disservice, and I'm going to say this in a little bit, to make it think like, it's not that big a deal, just let it go, forgive. And remember, forgiveness always involves pain. There's always suffering. And we don't hold that up to our children enough. uh, That, yeah, you were wronged. And forgiveness means I'm going to absorb that wrong. Now, that's a tight line with kids, and I realize that, because justice matters, you know, sibling rivalries. uh, But that's forgiveness. Um, The absorption of an injury, the absorption of an offense, uh, where you, substitutionarily, absorb the debt, the pain, that another should rightfully, in terms of justice, should rightfully experience. Um, We get it in terms of finances. That's where it's, again, a helpful way. That's where the Lord said, you know, we know the word, you know, we we, we know what it means to be forgiven a debt, to be forgiven $100 or something. Uh, Let's use that as a parallel to describe the pain, the soul pain that we have. Uh, by virtue of being a human being, uh, and let's let's probe that. Um, forgive and forget, one of the worst things that's out there. It's not true. Um, it's right up there with. Uh, I need to get to the text. I told you I could just go on and on and on. It's right up there with uh, sticks and stones. I hate that phrase. It's the worst phrase. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names do not tell our kids that. That's they they patently know. That of course it hurts to be called fat, to be excluded, to be called, you know, a dork or you know whatever else. I mean, every one of us knows that words matter. Let's call a spade a spade. Um, so let's turn. I want to make sure we get to the text. Um, Luke 17. Um, part in Luke where it looks like it would be sort of three pieces that just kind of get thrown in there, but going to try to unpack it a little bit and set the table and then uh, make a couple more observations about forgiveness. Um, This is a, and unfortunately, y'all have NIV and I've got ESV, and so it's going to be a little bit off, but I think we can manage. Um, uh, Luke 17, uh, and then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day 
and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, like, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you as a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he not? Does he thank his servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Kind of a hard saying. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village and was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And, when they, and, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, I'm aware as I was reading this out loud, the, the only person probably in these 20, 19 verses who thought any of this was good news was the, the leper who was cleansed and returned. These are hard words. Um, some some, some, some uh, angled words. These got some edges to them. What's going on? Verses 1 and 2, I think... Uh, Set a lot of it up. I've got to do a little bit of, of uh, some geeking out with Greek here, uh, but, but that's okay. Um, a lot of y'all are used to me, and this is kind of how I play this out. And there's a word, scandalon, um, that's in the Greek that's, that's, a, that's used here twice, and it's used two different ways. Uh, and I'm going to be, you know, here. I, I listen to myself sometimes, and I say, you imp, what in the world are you saying? Because um, I'm about to say, uh, I think the ESV translators take it one way, and I would go a different way with this word. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, uh, ESV being the English Standard Version. Um, it says, um, and he said to the disciples, temptation to skin, scandala are sure to come. One way that the word scandala, where we get the word scandalous, obviously, uh, is to, to call it just that, temptations to sin, either a temptation or a trigger point that we hold up before somebody else to, uh, to cause them to stumble, or at least to tempt them. Famously, as Ken Jones just preached on Thursday, magnificent sermon, um, where he recounted Peter uh, and his confession of Christ right after the transfiguration. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. Um, now I must go forth and third day be, you know, be killed and then the third day rise. He says, Lord, by no means, don't let this happen. And then immediately he calls him Satan. <laughs> you know, this thing from, you know, upon you will my church be built. Get behind me, Satan. And then he adds the words, uh, get behind me, Satan. Uh, do not tempt me. Don't hold this scandal on over me. Uh, and so it's just this temptation to sin. And that's, I think, the word that, that, that the ESV wants to hold on there. The other way it's used, um, most notably in 1 Corinthians 2, the great passage, which means a lot here, um, as, uh, as, as 
especially the last few months when Frank Limehouse was going out and Andrew was coming in as dean. Both of them held on to this verse very tightly. Uh, but we resolve to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified, a scandalon to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So it's the stumbling block, this offense, this, this left-handed, counterintuitive, backwards power of salvation that the cross is. I think it's there that this is used, that this left-handed, counterintuitive, uh, hidden, non-linear uh, way that the Lord deals with us. That's how it's used in here in the verse, uh, verse 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, the scandala, the cross, the left-handed power of me, is sure to come, and woe to, but woe to the one through whom it will come. Talking about himself. Uh, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, um, and now he's going to somebody else. It would be better if somebody else tried to prevent this truth, uh, that they would meet a violent end, um, that they, again in Ken Jones' language, they would try to pull me off the cross to do the very thing which I have to do than to cause one of these little ones you and I, uh, to sin. Don't do anything to take away the very thing which we resolve to know when we're among you. And that's Christ Jesus and him crucified. So the magnitude of the cross. The rest of the passage then begins makes more sense when we have that sense of the scandal. Pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves in verse 3. So right away we realize that as he's about to talk about forgiveness, he's not so interested in what the other person did. He's not so interested in, in trying to see the consequences of the real injury. He says, watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Take it seriously. That's what the word implies. Take it very, very seriously. Call a spade a spade. Offer it to him. You know, be engaged with it. Uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, if he comes to a... Um, as Luke describes it earlier in the story of the prodigal son, he almost can't talk about forgiveness without going there. When the, the younger son was eating food for pigs, and as a good Jew, you know, that is below the bottom. Um, uh, what's the word there? And, and, and coming to himself. It's a good description of, of repentance, of metanoia, of coming to one's mind, coming to a heart where my heart realizes the depth of my sin. Uh, and if he repents, if he has this change, this sense of a confession, not I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, now transactionally you owe me something, but a confession that I am dead. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I can, I am as, I'm as good as 20,000 leagues under the sea, and I have no power to not do anything. Um, from that point, we begin to see the scandala properly. Um, uh, and, and Jesus continues, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, I've come to myself again, you must forgive him. You must throw it away, send it off, erase the debt, send it, um, send it out, like a scapegoat was released into the wilderness uh, to be lost, as it were. So also shall we you know, release those sins. I hope you're setting this up like, yeah, great idea. How do I do it? You know, because Jesus is going to come into that. Then the apostle said to him, Lord, increase our faith. Um, 
which is a nice way. How do you how do you rebuke Jesus? How do you say you're 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 mad? You say something like, "Lord, increase our faith." This is a hard thing. He's like, you know, this is impossible. You can't do this. You know, obviously you're asking us something, and we don't have the resources yet. You need to give us more. You need to give us something else. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, remember that scale which is hidden in each one of us where we're counting the pain that we've been caused? If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you throw half of a mustard seed. I think I've seen a mustard seed once. You know, it's real small. Um, How much is that going to tip the scales? Not at all. And that's exactly what Christ is saying. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, there is no sort of righting of the wrong. There is no sort of making things even. If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Using the hyperbola to say, if you have that, you already have what is needed. And what is needed is the scandal, is me. Woe to me. You know, Lord, if there were any other way, let this cup pass from me. Um, the one who knew no sin is going to be made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, we already have what we need. We don't need, he says, what you need, what I need, is not more faith. Lord, increase our faith. He's about to really back up and say, no, we don't need to increase our faith. What we need is a great God, not a great faith. And he amplifies that by going on and on and on. Do not have um, in mind the winners in some sort of karma sense, but have in mind uh, good news for losers. That's going to be the lepers. So then he continues um, as to, to hit this point home that your life is not in your hands by saying this. Well, any of you as a servant, and we're not very good with indentured servants because um, we don't have them anymore, thanks be to God. Parts of the world do, of course, a lot more than we think. Uh, but if you were indebted to somebody else or you, you know, you know, as the, the Levitical law said, if you um, were responsible for somebody else's ox being killed or something like that, you, uh, you worked for that person for like three, five, ten years, whatever the law demanded, whether it was in, you know, Judaism or, or other cultures. And you were, that's who you were. You didn't sort of work nine to five and you come off the clock. It's not like having a butler or a maid or something else like that. It's all you were. And so in that sort of harsh context to our ears, he says, Will any of you as a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Oh, come in and sit down. I know you've been working hard. He's like, No. Kind of hurts our ears. No, you don't say that. You say, prepare supper for me. I know you've been out there 14 hours, but now I'm hungry, so come in here and cook. Um, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Uh, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done that which is to be done when our life is outside of our hands. Give me no word, it's as if the Lord is saying, that says increase our faith, get bigger, improve, progress. He's saying the scandalon is going to change everything. The whole economy of the scales is going to be something that's utterly different. And then he picks up, Luke does, um, this uh, this story where and then you know come back and let's let's interact with this. Yeah. Well, I don't think this is an. Or that's not what that's 
I don't think this is a comment, quote unquote, on the morality of, of servitude or whatever else. This is. Yep, it is. It's is, this is the lay of the land. Yeah, and it doesn't let up. You know, Paul picked it up and using the same idea, but but in a uh, even grittier way, he equates us with prostitutes. He's like, look, your life in your own. This hour is not yours. I bought you. He says this twice in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, right in the context of talking about a prostitution. So the, the point is pretty gritty, pretty gross. It's like, you, you don't have a say in this. Now, that's a hard word. Um, you, you're, you're, you're dead, remember? You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. Lazarus had no say about them rolling the stone in and leaving him in the tomb for three days. He was dead. He's getting that point to us. You're dead. That's the condition. And that's going to be then the fuel for the forgiveness. So he goes on. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village and was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now what's going on here? Lepers equal losers. And we know, you know, we, we do do well with our children. We, get, we, we communicate that to them. To be a leper back then wasn't just bad news. I mean, it was it was as if life stopped. You, you were removed from your family, from the city, from from everything, and and uh, and taken out and put aside. Uh, you lost. There was no no possibility for restitution, reconciliation, um, anything like that. And so, not surprisingly, who does Jesus associate with quite a bit? The unclean, the people that were. Um, that were the pariah, the untouchable, the people that were forgotten. Um, and so he goes and, and he says uh, something really scandalous. Uh, go show yourselves to the priest. The priests were the doctors. Um, they were the ones that were able to say, yes, you've got your vaccinations in order. You can go into second grade now. Um, they were the ones that could look and say, yeah, you're good. You can, you can now be restored. What does Jesus do here? Mark the progression. Um, he says, go show yourselves to the priest. Go present yourself as if you were already clean, as if you were already restored, as if you were already forgiven. Let it be reckoned to you as if the account has already been paid, as if the scales have been righted. And then on the way, they were cleansed. That's the first sort of turning point. The second, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Now there's the same way that, that uh, that Luke, two chapters earlier, you know, where the uh, the prodigal son, the younger son, came to himself, turned back to himself, saw things as they actually were. The, uh, the one of the ten had repentance, had this this change of heart where he was able to see things as it actually was. And then praising God with a loud voice, who did he go back to? And who did Jesus say go see? The priest. He gets it. The one priest, as the writer of Hebrews would say the great high priest, the leper goes back to the one, the one person who will be an intermediary between God and man. The specific use of that word priest, I know we in the Episcopal tradition, borrowing in our Catholic heritage, uh, use that word kind of loosely. It has a very specific context, and, and this is where theologically I would differ with, with the context that, that classic Roman Catholicism holds it, that the priest is able to stand between God and man in a way that you and I can't. Um, 
because of the, the ritual of purification and sacrifice in his life that he's able to, uh, to do, the priest can serve as an intermediary between God and man, as an advocate between God and man. Um, Hebrews, among other places, says that's, that's not it. There's one priest, uh, the high priest, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and he, this is a true and worthy saying uh, for all to hear that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he is our advocate with the Father. Um, that he is pleading our case and he stands as our intermediary between. And the leper that was cleansed, the one who got it, came back and he recognized, you are my only way back. I was as good as dead and now I am in your indentured servant. My life, as it has been given back to me, is now wholly and completely yours. You do with it what you will, but I pray that you would be gentle with it. Um, and then Jesus, uh, gentle with him, a Samaritan, um, doubly unclean, a double loser. Um, as the coach I used to coach with said, I'm going to kill you dead to the boys. You know, you're already dead. I'm going to kill you again. That's a Samaritan leper. And then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? And no one was found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said, Rise, go your way. I release you. You are free. Um, although I have every right to hold you as an indentured servant, I release you. Now, uh, you know, double jeopardy is enacted. <laughs> you can't be tried for the same crime twice. You will always be clean. You'll never regress and go backwards. And I've given you freedom. That which was yours is now mine. That which was mine is now yours. So, any comments on that before I go back to forgiveness and set the table for the rest of the weeks? Why did he say priest instead of like rabbi? I mean, is priest a term that was. It would be commonly known. Same thing? Um, Does he just mean the leaders of the church? You know, the rabbi would be a teacher, um, and this would be very interesting. I'm not going to go here too far, but the Samaritan would be kind of a half breed. And he would have priests in his temple, you know, kind of playing his fate in two different worlds, a sort of a pagan temple and those priests, as well as maybe a priest in the order of Levi. They're the ones who, um, uh, priests in Judaism, came out of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were all sons of Levi. So that'd be a specific office separate from rabbi. But to the Samaritan, that's also the question. It's a good one you brought up. Samaritan would go, well, well, which one? I've got, I've got all sorts of priests. I've got some that my grandfather used, and I've got some that Jews use, you know, and I'm kind of fluent in all these different languages. And he realized it's none. The one priest, the one place between me and God. This is where, well, I won't go there. So. Another comment or two on the text? Let me see where we can go for... Uh, away with the uh, I mean come back one thing to uh, to forgiveness sort of in the uh, the emotional debt kind of vein um, with all this in mind uh, going back to the uh, to the word Keller brought us um, the currency of forgiveness is pain uh, I'm gonna put forth as a thesis we're all pulling for karma um, we, we really believe in karma. Um, all of us then are, are Hindus and, and Buddhists and, and Ben Franklin and everybody else. 
uh, which just is what comes around, goes around, you know, you know, yeah, I'll do this for you, but you know, I kind of know that in 20 years it's going to come back on me or something like that. Some form of pay it forward, some sense of karma. Karma is just a way of describing the way that we're wired, that you know, good things come to those who blank. Um, you get back what you put into it. And that's not Christ. That's what he takes great pains in this very offensive chapter, um, 17, where he sort of throws in indentured servitude, slavery into our face, and says, look, deal with it. You know, uh, uh, the ten lepers, which seems kind of abrasive, this whole thing is like, somebody comes to you seven times and says, I'm sorry, forgive them. Uh, well, but you don't understand, it's complicated. I mean, this was a really bad thing. Um, he says, I get it. You were hurt. It is real. You know, he pulls the pain card and he holds it straight out. We're rooting for him to be hurt. Because when, and this works, I think, in really small injuries, but also in big ones. And I try to think of a movie. Maybe y'all can help me. Because I think this has played out a lot. A movie or a book or something else like that. What I really want when somebody hurts me is what? For them to hurt. Whether I hurt them or somebody else, it's better when somebody else, because then I have the sort of self-righteousness, like, oh, they got what's coming to them, and I don't have to, like, you know, sock them in the nose or whatever. Uh, and so when it happens, what, what do you feel? You feel a little bit better. You're like, okay, you know, the debt got paid down just a little bit. Now, sometimes the offense is so much so that there's nothing. There's nothing that could ever happen that's going to sort of repay the debt, uh, and that you just refuse to bring it. There's a third instance, I think, sometimes where you're like, oh, man, Jason did that to me. I'm not going to tell him that really hurt me. You know, just, or don't let him find a parking space, you know, <laughs> really inconvenience him or something like that. And then he calls and it says, you know, and I'm just making this up. It's not true. And he's like, you know, I got to, you know, my, my dog died or my, my dad has cancer or something else like that. And then what happens in us? It's a little bit of an overstatement. You're like, did I do that? You know, there's some sort of, you know, what's the thing? The pins and the doll? Voodoo. We think for a minute that karma exists and somehow I'm bringing this on. The currency of forgiveness is pain. Throughout three ways, somewhere something is connecting with somebody in some of those ways that you really secretly wish that the, the scales just a little bit would have more than a mustard seed thrown on them and that it would be righted. Uh, that's human nature. That's who we are naturally. That is our naked and bald self. And it isn't pretty. It's a really ugly aspect of, uh, of who we are. And it's important that we, we, we unvarnish and we climb in beneath and we, we, we lay the heart open uh, as the Lord does here in, in Luke 17 and, and, and call the spades spades. Uh, in a relationship, um, and I'll find an exit here. This is where it happens. I mentioned this in passing. Well, it's important in a marriage, for instance. But it could be any relationship, an employee, employer, sibling, parent, whatever. Uh, what's wrong with any of these statements? Look, I said I was sorry. What else do you want me to do? Um, or something like, if I ever did anything to anybody where I was possibly offensive to you, I'm sorry the way that you heard what I said you know, upset you. <laughs> something like that. I'm sorry you're so sensitive. I'm sorry that you're upset. I'm sorry, you know, something like that. You're right, I did yell, but I said I was sorry. Why are you still mad at me? You know, as if sorry sort of takes care of everything. What's missing in all these? 
the other person's not showing us that they hurt. The other person is not showing us that they get pain. The other person is not demonstrating to us that somehow the currency has not been paid. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal here. It's especially big here. Because some people are never going to do it. Some people hurt us and we're never going to see them again. Um, uh, and those offenses can be carried over for years. Corey Ten Boom, the, uh, the, when she was a little girl, she's the one who, uh, her and her family hid Jews in her house in um, Holland, I think it was. And then after the war, um, she really um, spoke a lot on forgiveness. And she said, she observed, the, the, the people that I worked with who could uh, forgive the Germans, the Nazis, who killed my sister, in Corey Ten Boom's case, who killed you know my whole family, where I'm the only one in my town that's left, the ones who could somehow manage to absorb that and release it here, uh, they were okay. The ones that couldn't, they became invalids, she said. Um, it'll twist you. It'll turn you. I need to find an exit. Um, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to leave it as a hanging place for, for Jason to jump in on. Um, uh, the currency of forgiveness is pain, and we intuitively know it. Uh, we, we need another to hurt for us, whether that's the person who offended us um, and we want them to hurt, or, and I hope you realize the way I'm framing it, we need, we need justice to be served. We need blood to be spilled. That's gross. That's human heart. Am I overstating it? I don't think so. I'm going to leave it there um, and setting it up for this scandal, this offense. It is a stumbling block and foolishness, or it is the power of God for all who believe. Um, forgiveness is huge. The gospel, forgiveness, the love of God, the wrath of God poured out upon himself, the cross, scandal, all that, it's all intermingled. Mayo may want to pull it out and call it, you know, letting go of a thought for revenge. I think it's a little bit more layered than that. But we have the full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And that is very, very, very good news. Um, so let me pray. And then I'm here if you want to come back. Lord, take this time. I, uh, I fumbled with my time, and, and uh, uh, I pray that you would uh, pay that no mind, and somehow, in spite of me, that you would take this time and redeem it and use it uh, in a way that would be helpful. Lord, this is a, a huge idea, a huge, a huge need. Um, speak your gospel, your balm, your saving uh, salve and heal the wounds to release us from uh, from the embittered uh, fruit of unforgiveness. Um, uh, take this time, Lord, and make it yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.